You've been sold the idea that financial independence is all about some number on your account statement, or even worse, that you don't qualify because of where you started out. That's just not true. It's not about some well-kept secret of the wealthy. It's about finding the right information and knowing how to apply it. On the Get Ready for the Future show, we're answering your questions so you can start making real financial change today. The journey to true financial independence begins right here, and it starts with you. That's what we're about here at the Get Ready for the Future show, helping you to discover, protect, and share true financial independence. We're on radio, we're on podcast, we are online, wherever you find us today. We are glad to have you along. We are answering your questions, as always, and you can get them to us by calling them calling them in or texting them in to this number, 501-381-5228. Again, it's 501-381-5228. You can also send an email to show at getreadyforthefuture.com. Got some good questions for you today. I'm Scott Inman, John Shrewsbury with me. We're going to be talking about HSAs, 401ks between two employers, how much cash should you have on the sidelines, and oh, what to do about taxes and inherited IRAs. We're covering it all today. Yeah, and and both of us got the uh, plaid shirt memo today. I have a plaid shirt memo every day, I think. Well, I think I, I've been accused do. of that. Well, anyway. I, you are Mr. Plaid. I do own some solid <laughs> shirts, but around here they think I'm just always wearing plaid. But well, prove it. You, uh, yeah. <laughs> but next week, next yes, week we'll put it on the schedule. Okay. And you've got the you've shown me up once again with the coat though. That's well, I just toned down the plaid is <laughs> is what I'm trying to do. Yeah. So he can get busy in front of the brick yes, wall behind yes, us. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. All right, so you ready to dive in? Yeah, let's do this. Okay, we're going to start with Alicia from Bentonville. Here's her question: How much cash should I have on the side? Beyond the emergency fund, thinking of sinking funds for car, home, repair, vacations, etc. What's a good rule of thumb so I'm not keeping too much cash, but still have enough liquid assets to make purchases at the right time and before retirement? Great question, Alicia. We appreciate you sending that in. And, you know, the bottom line is there's certainly no rule of thumb uh, that applies to sinking funds. And, and I guess we should probably start by defining what really traditionally that is. But She's talking about here, John, setting aside, which is a great idea, so that you don't have to borrow money. Yep. Set aside a lump sum for large purchases above and beyond what you have set aside that is prepared for emergencies. Yeah. This this term sinking fund is actually uh, refers to uh, paying off a bond by a company. They right. they put money back, so when that bond matures, they've got the money to actually do that. And it's kind of the same thing here, except you you're, you as you said, Scott. You're, you're planning a purchase, you're wanting to buy something, and you're saying, okay, it cost X number of dollars, let's say $1,000, so I'm going to save $100 a month for 10 months, and then in the 11th month, I'll be able to buy that item, whatever it might be. So having a sinking fund is a great idea, and we love that idea to keep you from borrowing the money and then paying it off because you're going to do that with interest and sometimes high interest with a credit card. But as far as the the overall line of thinking, here's what I would say. Emergency funds are forever and sinking funds kind of come and go because once you buy that item, then you don't need that sinking fund for that item again. Now you may want to redirect those savings somewhere else, but you I think you've got to have this kind of mental accounting mindset, Scott, of having your emergency fund be okay, in this account or kept up on a spreadsheet or however you want to do it, and then separately you're saving for those various items because what you don't want to do 
is you don't want to delude yourself into thinking, oh, I've got my emergency fund covered. And oh, by the way, I'm going to go take $1,000 out of that emergency fund and go buy this thing. Well, all of a sudden, it just uh, became not an emergency fund, but a put and take account. I think you have to have both. You have to have the put and take account as far as your goals are concerned and the items that you want to buy, the sinking fund, if you will. And then you have to have your emergency fund that you have in reserve for true emergencies. And then if you have a true emergency, then you redirect your savings to build that yeah. emergency fund back up as soon as possible. That's what I was going to say, because I think it's important to point out that's the difference. Your emergency fund needs to be set at a specific amount. And if you have an emergency and use some of those funds and they are depleted, you have to set your priority to replacing that, right? So what is a good emergency fund? Because that's the step process. We're going to have to determine that before we get into the sinking fund. And it sounds like Alicia has an emergency fund. We don't know how much she has in it. But a good rule of thumb here would be three to six months of household expenses. What's it going to take to maintain the household if there's no income coming in for three to six months? And, you know, Dave Ramsey says, you know, you could even go up to a year here. There is some uh, availability here for comfort level. Yes. I, I think that a number like $20,000, let's say, we, not knowing what uh, this three to six month lines out, a lot of people will land on that. I want $20,000 in cash because that's going to help me meet my uh, health insurance deductible if I have to, my homeowner's deductible if I have to. I'm going to leverage the insurance company past all of that. I've got enough money to get out of trouble, right, to get yes. out of the emergency I'm in. And then so let's set that aside. Make sure we don't go if it's $20,000 below $20,000 unless it's an emergency. And then I think it is a good idea, to your point, to have another account. I mean, you could build on that. If you wanted to have it in the same account, you could say, okay, the first 20 is emergency, the next 20 is my sinking fund. But it does help visualize it better if you keep it separate. Yeah, some people have to do that. Uh, Some people are really good with spreadsheets and they understand, okay, all the money's in one account, but I've got that segregated or divided up on a spreadsheet and I know exactly what I'm dealing with here. Other people have to have, okay, this is my statement for the emergency fund. This is my statement for my sinking fund, uh, for my put and take account, as I like to call it. And, and, but I think the, the objective is that you have this big wall between the two and you say, look, I'm not going to use my emergency fund for my future purchases. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to use my f- future purchases for an emergency because I've got that money already earmarked. Now, I think it is very critical, Scott, that you think about the fact that if you do have an emergency, then maybe you ought to hit pause on the saving for those uh, items that you are saving for and be sure you build that emergency fund back up as soon as possible because you never know. Sometimes these things come in twos or threes and and you've got to tap into that emergency fund maybe sooner than you would anticipate. And with regard to those sinking funds or with the plan to build up some cash for a major purchase, it's important to be specific as possible with not only the amount that you plan to spend, because that's a budgeting tool, right? You say, right. hey, I don't, I'm going to spend 30000 on this car, and I'm not going to get a car. So when you go shopping for a car, you don't get lured into getting sold on the forty dollars or $50,000 car because you know your goal is thirty. That's very helpful from a financial perspective. But from an investment perspective, and we haven't talked about the investment side of this because Alicia is talking about cash, but if I think it's very important to be as specific as possible on timeline. If it's a vacation that you're going to take next year, absolutely you need to be building that savings in cash. If it's a dream vacation you're going to plan to take in 10 years or 8 years, 
I don't know that cash is the best place to do that. Yeah, you know, emergency funds are are really good to be uh, in a bank savings account, so you've got immediate access to it, or even a money market account, which you could write a check on or have ACH into your banking account in a fairly short amount of time. And uh, money market mutual funds are paying above 5% these days in terms of, of interest on a monthly basis, They they uh, on an annualized basis, I should say, 5% is around the benchmark of where money market accounts are sitting right now. So it's not just collecting dust over there. It is earning a nice, uh, decent rate of return. However, if you, as you said, Scott, if you're going to take that vacation in 10 years, you might want to get a little bit more adventuresome, not, maybe not invested in individual stocks or anything of that nature, but maybe a good diversified mutual fund would give you some growth over that 10-year period of time where you're not just plotting along at 5%, you might actually get a little bit of extra help in meeting your goal from investing in a very diverse, safe, widely invested mutual fund uh, that could uh, be a benefit to you down the road. Of course, that does involve some additional risk. You're going to see the the fluctuation of that account go up and down. But the fact that you've got that 10-year time horizon before you need to use that money, I think is is helpful in that situation. We're going to branch a little bit away from Alicia's question here to also kind of refer to this in terms of retirement, right? So if you know when it comes to being as specific as possible, when you're going to retire, you need a plan that involves all these components as well, right? right. You, you need some equity exposure for long-term growth for money you're not going to touch for 15 plus years but it could be a good idea to begin building excess cash reserves and maybe utilize a money market mutual fund for the money if you're retiring in a year or two to begin using that in the early stages of retirement. Because rather than pulling it from your 401k or your IRA, as we're going to talk about in a little bit, which is going to be taxed, you can receive it the post-tax income while you're still working and begin to pile up the cash on the sidelines in a non-retirement account. And we've mentioned these money market funds, John, I think it's important to kind of maybe drill down a little bit on what that is, because people probably heard, hey, they're getting 5% right now. They're very interested in that, right? We know CDs are also in that realm, even a short-term basis, three, six, 12 months, you're seeing uh, interest rates offered higher than 5%. The difference between a CD and a money market mutual fund, the money market funds invest in short-term, high-quality debt or cash equivalents and are not intended to provide investors with low risk income, or they are, I'm sure, I'm sorry, they are intended to provide investors with low risk income and stable liquidity, but they are not completely risk free. So you think of an FDIC insured CD, it is insured, as its name implies, by the FDIC, and you know you're going to get your money back if you don't exceed the certain uh, limits imposed there. And you're going to, as long as you leave it in for the term, you're going to get that interest rate. There is some risk with a money market mutual fund. They're not FDIC insured. Yeah, they're not. And and there's really been very, very uh, long history of stability in money market accounts. They, they uh, strive to maintain a $1 per share net asset value. And uh, I think there may have been one money market account back during the financial crisis that that broke the buck, as they used to call it, and 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 dipped for a short period of time below one uh, one dollar per share. But money market accounts invest in very very short term, high quality commercial paper, uh, government bonds, and things of that nature that are very very safe in terms of their their risk factor. So there is some risk in a money market account, but you're not likely to see market fluctuation 
in that account. Yeah, so you think about the use for it. It is more liquid than a CD because you can get in and out of it uh, with the with the daily pricing, but the interest rate's also variable. So, That's right. So if we do see interest rates go back down in the future, you'll see that interest rate go down as well. They were not. We were not talking about money market funds two years ago. That's Let's right. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Scott, you were talking about uh, retirement a minute ago, and I want to be sure that everyone is tuned in and you have this on your radar. September's a, a really busy month for a lot of people for a lot of different reasons, but I want to be sure you have this on your radar about uh, our Social Security workshop coming up over in Hot Springs at the Hot Springs Convention Center. It is going to be Tuesday, September 26th at 6.30 p.m. Now, you know, I know that that may sound like it's, uh, it's a little ways away. Uh, man, September is blown through. We're right in the middle of September right now. And I remember going, can we just get to football season? I mean, it was just a, a couple of days ago, it seems like. But uh, we've got a special guest, Matt Emanuel, is going to come in, and he does a great job of explaining and, frankly, cutting away a lot of the myths, a lot of the misnomers, a lot of the coffee shop talk that might not be totally correct about Social Security. Scott, I believe that there's probably somewhere in the hundred and fifty dollars to $200,000 at risk in terms of how you make a decision about Social Security. It could cost you up to that much money if you make the wrong decision. So we want you to have the straight talk and the facts about this. So we've asked Matt to come in and, and join us for this workshop called How to Maximize Your Social Security. Absolutely free of charge. You can go to GetReadyForTheFuture.com forward slash Social Security and register there. Or you can give our office a call at 866-653-PLAN and we can get you registered that way as well. Coming up on the 26th at 6.30, Hot Springs Convention Center. We are all about education uh, at Genwell Financial Advisors and on the Get Ready for the Future show. We want to answer your questions here. We just answered Alicia's. We're moving on to Henry now from Benton. Here's Henry's question. What are the implications for maxing 401k contributions between two employers? On track to max this year, he says. New job starting in a week. What problems do I face if I overshoot by a bit while trying to balance the two? Great question, Henry. And first of all, congratulations to you for maxing out those 401k contributions, getting those pre-tax dollars in and preparing for retirement. It can seem complex here, John, but I think if we break it down, it's not really complex in terms of understanding. It can be a little more complex in implementation. Yeah, I think you have to say, okay, at the end of the term of your first job, you know how much you've contributed to your 401k plan. And what you have to do is just compare that to the overall annual contribution limit. The annual contribution limit, if you're under 50, is $22,500. And I think that bumps up to $30,000 if you're 50 or above. So let's say that you've contributed $15,000 and you're over 50, you've got $30,000 of cap, so you have another $15,000 that you can contribute. And if you are on a set salary, you have a percentage, but you basically just work through the math and try to get as close as you can to that maximum. You don't want to go over the maximum because it does get kind of complex. Your, your uh, employer has to get involved. And you have to back out contributions and pay tax on them and that type of thing. But uh, the limit, Scott, on this only pertains to employer, uh, I'm sorry, employee contributions. Your employer contributions do not affect your contribution limit. So that 30000 or that 22500 limit is not inclusive 
of what your employer puts away for you. So where this can get complex if is if you are on some type of variable compensation. Yeah, and I think it's I think this where this gets sideways is is we see this in client meetings all the time because we obviously when we're planning for uh, a client's retirement, we want to know what they're at at the end of their work life they're going to end up with from an asset level, and some of that has to do with assuming some rates of return with what they have, but a lot of it has to do with how much they're contributing to their employer plans or to their retirement plans. And we'll ask them, we'll say, how much are you contributing to your 401k? And they'll say 11%. Well, <laughs> 11% of what, right? <laughs> yeah. Because that's the way it's set up, right? You have to normally choose your contribution as a percentage of your income. They don't let you just say, I want to put $22,500 in. And where this gets tricky to John's point, and I'll, and I'll tell you a personal example of this, is my wife, Sarah, she is uh, in sales. So she has a structured salary, but then she gets quarterly bonuses based on performance, right? So if she sets 17% of her income as her contribution amount, well, that's pretty steady when she's getting those month-to-month paychecks. But when she gets a bonus, the employer is going to take 17% of that bonus. So what we have to watch, because she actually just got her bonus in September, is we are getting very close to hitting her cap before right. the year is over. Now, why does that matter? If you get twenty, you, you may be listening that and listening to that and go, well, if you can get twenty two thousand five hundred dollars and no more, and your employer stops putting money in when you hit that cap, what difference does it make if you do it in September versus December? Well, here's the answer: the employer match. It yes. is called a match for a reason, and the reason I'm saying that is is because it's matched based on your contribution. So if you max out in September and you are no longer putting money, your own money, into your 401k in October and November and December, it is very likely that your employer match will not happen That's in right. those last three months, and you could be missing out on thousands of dollars. Absolutely. And I think uh, back to, to the uh, the basis of the question, I think that you, you want to be very careful about this. You want to be sure that you don't go over. You want to involve your employer and let them know, hey, look, here's what I contributed at my old job. This is what I'm able to contribute in this one. Let's be sure that I don't contribute anymore because then you get the IRS involved and it's, it gets really complex and you end up paying taxes and maybe even a penalty. So that's, that's all we really needed to say, right? Yeah, that's you, it. You, you can get the IRS involved, so yes. don't do it. Yeah. Uh, you know, but you just have to stay on top of it. It's pretty easy, I think, Henry, to look back and see what your year-to-date contributions uh, were at the previous employer most places are going to let you have online access to that, and it's probably going to be right there on your dashboard, Yep. Uh, how much you contributed. So you know where the cutoff point is. You know how much wiggle room you have at the new job, and you just have to do a little basic math to determine what percentage of your income that is. True. Thanks to Henry for that question. If you've got questions, we want to answer them. You can call or text them in to us, 501-381-5228, to hear your questions answered on the air, or you can send us an email Send it to show at getreadyforthefuture.com. And if I'm not mistaken, John, I think our next question came to us via email. Yep. Show at getreadyforthefuture.com. That's what Jerry from Sherwood did. So here we go with our next question. Is there any way to reduce the burden of taxes for inherited IRAs except converting to a Roth? I've just about decided to start reducing it yearly and paying the taxes myself, but I was wondering if there was anything else I could do. I would like to know what kind of an immediate annuity that you have, since that would be one way. I know I could not pass anything to the heirs that way, but it is one option I am interested in. 
Jerry, thanks very much. And there is definitely a problem uh, with the inherited IRA from a tax perspective that did not exist just three short years ago. Yeah, the SECURE Act, which we have railed against on this show on a, on a number of occasions, is anything but secure as far as our, our clients are concerned because it's really jeopardizing the future security, of, particularly of those folks that, that inherit IRAs. Now, how can that be a bad thing? Well, just think about this. If you inherited a $100,000 IRA and you took all that money at once, then all of a sudden you've got $100,000 more in income and you're thrust into a bigger tax bracket. Now, that's the extreme. But that $100,000 IRA has to be divided up and you have to take it out all within a 10-year period of time. And so there is complexity to this. And and it really does, as Jerry has alluded to, really uh, create a tax burden for folks that maybe are in their highest income earning years because if you think about when a parent dies and leaves it to a child this is this is where the rub comes in that child is in high earning years then all of a sudden they've got all this other income that is being forced for them to take because they have to take it over a 10-year period of time so we warned everybody about this back in 2020 scott when the legislation was passed that it was going to create this tremendous tax burden And we're seeing evidence of this show up in Jerry's question. This applies to 401k plans, traditional IRAs, even applies to Roth IRAs, although the Roth is not taxable, you still have to take the distribution. But unfortunately, Jerry, there's not much that you can do to relieve or reduce the tax burden. Of course, you could have taxes withheld from the distribution and therefore the IRA or 401k plan is paying the taxes itself but it may cause you to pay a higher tax bracket in your own personal income. So the real problem arises when those distributions are significant and are added to your normal taxable income, Scott. Yeah, and the other problem is if you send it to your heirs, if there's only one heir and it's a substantial amount in the IRA, right? Right. Because this really isn't, if you've got four or $500,000 and you've got four or five kids, it's probably not going to be that big of a deal. Right. But if you've got one kid and you've got a million dollars, that's where he's really going to be stuck. So how do you deal with that? Well, let's let's take a look at a graphic that we've got here. And if you are uh, listening to us on podcast, you can go to our website at Get Ready for the Future. I'm sorry, our Facebook page at Wealth Financial Advisors and see this graphic. You've got, uh, if you have an IRA that you've inherited and you are a non-spouse beneficiary, meaning that you're not the spouse of the person who passed away, and it happened in 2020 or later, you have the option to withdraw the entire amount in a lump sum, which is probably not a a tax-efficient thing for you to do. Or you have option two. Option two is kind of twofold. If the original owner had not started taking required minimum distributions, you can deplete the account over 10 years. If the owner had started taking RMDs, you have to take annual distributions based on life expectancy in years one through nine, and then deplete the balance in the account in year 10. Well, year 10 could be a problem for you. If you take it on life expectancy and it's not that much, but it's a big amount, then all of a sudden in year 10, you have to take all of that money out. I don't think that Congress really was mindful of how this was going to impact people. I think they saw it as an opportunity to draw money into the treasury ahead of time, as opposed to the old stretch IRA rules. And, and I think that's what's happened. Now, let's be clear. Uh, Jerry didn't ask about this, but let's go ahead and cover a second graphic that we have here that if you're a spouse 
If you are a spouse and you have inherited your spouse's IRA, they've passed away and you've inherited this IRA, you have the option, again, of taking it all in one lump sum or rolling the funds into your own IRA. Our option free is to retitle the account as an inherited IRA and withdraw funds as needed without penalty if you're under 59 and a half. If you're after age 59 and a half, you can roll the inherited IRA into your own IRA. So Congress has made this anything but easy. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've made it anything but but less burdensome to people. It right. is a big, big deal to people whose parents are passing away with some wealth and they're passing it on in the form of an IRA account. You need to work with a financial advisor to work through this. So let's deal with the tax burden part of Jerry's question, John, because you mentioned it at the very front. Unfortunately, there's not a lot you can do here, and you cannot avoid the taxes at all. So if you hear people touting that out there uh, from a sales perspective, from a financial advisor perspective, it's disingenuous at best. You cannot avoid it. You can minimize it. So working with a financial advisor to determine how you can make some withdrawals during your lifetime that don't put you in to a higher tax bracket allows you to receive the funds, pay a tax amount that is likely less than your heir will pay when they were to receive it, and you don't have to spend the money. You can reinvest the funds and put them in a non-qualified account, which will receive a step up in cost basis if you don't sell anything upon your death, and that would be a way for your heir to not pay very much at all on taxes. Jerry also asked a question about an immediate annuity. Uh, I want to talk a a little bit about this because there are folks out there that will, you know, try to buffalo you into thinking that buying an annuity solves all this problem. Here's what buying an annuity does. It puts it on autopilot. If you, the only annuity that works in this situation is a 10 year period, certain immediate annuity. And you have to put the money into that 10 year period, certain immediate annuity when you receive it as your inheritance and then start those distributions. If not, then you're going to be off schedule as far as the 10-year time frame is concerned. But the 10-year period certain immediate annuity just puts it on autopilot. It distributes basically a tenth of the uh, money plus whatever interest rate that fixed annuity is paying you. It pays out on an annual basis. It could pay on a monthly basis, but it does automate it. But there's no magic. It doesn't reduce the taxes or anything of that nature. It simply is an automated vehicle to make sure you don't screw this thing up and impose even more penalties on top of you in addition to the tax burden that you've already got. A couple other things you could think about here is a qualified charitable distribution. You wouldn't actually be able to spend the money that you're taking out of your IRA, but you cannot pay tax on that money. So if you're a charitable thinker, uh, charitable-minded, charitable you're already giving to a church, let's say, and right now you're using after-tax money to do that, you could begin sending your church qualified charitable distributions from your IRA. Those are non-taxable if they are sent to a qualifying charity and directly to the charity. So again, you don't get to touch the money, but you're not paying taxes. That can be a way to reduce that. And then one thing, too, that people look at, too, now more than ever, John, is life insurance. Yes, life insurance is is a tax-free inheritance uh, and so oftentimes, uh, if you are, uh, this all has to be planned before somebody passes away, obviously. Right. But uh, if you think about the, the fact that maybe you've got this uh, significant amount of money in a qualified plan and you want to leave it to your family in the most tax efficient way possible, you might take part of that money that is in the IRA 
and use that money, a distribution from that IRA, to pay for a life insurance policy. Because at your death, then the insurance company is going to write a check to your heirs. There is no tax. There's no inheritance tax. There's no income tax, no nothing. They just get a check. And so that is really, uh, with the SECURE Act, that has really pushed life insurance into the forefront of being a great way to transfer assets to your family, allowing you to spend the IRA money, knowing that you've got that life insurance as a backup for your legacy. Just got to make sure that you're insurable. I think sometimes if you wait too late in life to do that, it's going to be very problematic to to accomplish that. All right, we've got one final question. We're running out of time in a hurry, but we promised a question on HSAs, so we want to get there. Ashley from Little Rock writes, my employer offers both a PPO and a high-deductible health plan with an HSA. Can you talk about when to choose one versus the other? Well, lots of, uh, lots of tentacles on this one, Scott. A uh, high-deductible plan is likely to cost less per month. Now, if your employer is paying for it versus you, that may be a, a, a bit of an issue. But you have to look at this and go, okay, what is the most effective way for me to provide for health care? An HSA saves money. Uh, you have to save money to take care of the high deductible. Uh, that's what that health savings account is for. You have a high deductible, let's say a couple of thousand dollars. Well, the expectation is instead of you having a $200 deductible, you now have a $2,000 deductible, but you're going to save in premiums and be able to put that money into a health savings account and be able to take that money and offset that high deductible. That's as opposed to paying uh, ostensibly a higher premium for a lower deductible policy and being able to just say, okay, I only need $200 for my deductible. Yeah, so it's a really great tool if you're getting close to retirement to begin building uh, funds for your out-of-pocket health care costs. In fact, we did a uh, Fastest 4 Minutes in Finance segment on this uh, just last week. Uh, where we talked about the HSA uh, contribution limits going up in 2024, and you can get more money into them. You can invest them longer term if you're not using them on a year-to-year basis, and then you can pull them out for qualified uh, medical expenses in retirement tax-free. And we know that that's going to be one of the largest costs, if not the largest cost, that a retired couple is going to face is their out-of-pocket health care costs. So building that now Uh, is a longer-term advantage of the HSA over not using the high-deductible plan. Scott, let's talk a little bit about what the attributes of a health savings account are because you you think about it and you go, well, you you know, it's a savings account. Is that really something I want to put my money into? Well, first of all, your contributions are done through a payroll deduction, and it's done on a pre-tax basis. So you're building up money before taxes, putting it into the HSA. The growth on that money, anything that it earns, grows on a tax-deferred basis. So you're not paying any taxes on the earnings in that account. Some plans have a variety of investments. Now, this is not something that we deal with here at GenWealth from an investment standpoint, but we understand that there are some plans out there that give you the opportunity to invest your money, not just have it in a safe, you know, uh, three, four, five percent savings account or something of that nature. And the proceeds, as you mentioned a little bit earlier, Scott, uh, if they're used for medical expenses, are free of tax. An HSA, though, is probably not an advisable strategy for folks who are on moderate or low incomes because, you know, saving that money into that health savings account 
and keeping your hands off of it is it can be problematical. Usually this happens with uh, a little bit higher earners and, and people that have a lot of financial discipline to be able to manage this. And, and I don't know at the end of the day whether you really come out a tremendous amount better than paying the higher premium for the health insurance, potentially so. I know here at GenWealth, we have always opted to go with the low deductible as opposed to the HSA-type program. It just seemed that there wasn't that big of a differentiation between the two. Before we hit our final thoughts, because the, the uh, closing bell is about to ring in a few seconds, I did want to mention that we had a question of the week. Jerry from Sherwood asking about the inherited IRAs. He is our question of the week, and I want to thank him for reaching out, and we would love to send, Jerry, you a free Get Ready for the Future show Tumblr just for being the question of the week. It's the one I sport right here these days. They let me borrow it, I guess. I drink my water out of it every week. We'll send you a new one, Jerry, I promise. Yeah, not that one, not that exact one. But all you have to do, Jerry, is to go ahead and email us to let us know you want to claim that. Just email it to show at getreadyforthefuture.com. Dot com. I think we already have your email uh, because you emailed the question in, uh, but we would love to hear that you want to get that uh, Tumblr and we'll be able to get some information from you on where to send it. There's the closing bell and it's time for our final thoughts. Scott, as you look back on our show today, if you think about all the differences between HSAs and PPOs and uh, how to deal with an inherited IRA, uh, what do you do in terms of being sure that you don't have too much cash and and how do I save for things that I want to buy in the future? And how about my 401k contributions? Look, money is tough. Money is, is a complex operation, but money is not meant to be something that is a burden to you. I think you have to think for yourself. You have to fend for yourself when it comes to money, but you don't need to go it alone. And I think that's where a relationship with a financial advisor comes into play I think that your financial advisor can provide you a great deal of value. If they're a good financial advisor, they can provide you a great deal of value, not only for just investing your money, but also in the contact that they have with you throughout the year, talking about various issues. But I will also say that you have to engage with your financial advisor. They're not going to know magically that something's going on in your life. When those things come up, you have to think about that advisor as a trusted contact that you can deal with. My final thought is a reminder about our Hot Springs workshop entitled Maximizing Your Social Security. Matt Emanuel is our special guest to talk about Social Security. It's coming up September 26th at 630 at the Hot Springs Convention Center, and it is easy to register. Just go to GetReadyForTheFuture.com forward slash Social Security. It is a free event. We hope to see you there. And that's all the time we have for this week's Get Ready for the Future show. You know, we only answer four questions in 35 minutes, but man, it goes by so fast. It does. We are so thankful to you for sending those questions in. We encourage you to do that. Call us or text it. 501-381-5228. See you next time. Thank you for listening to the Get Ready for the Future show. If you enjoy hearing from the Gen Wealth team every week, make sure and subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help us get the word out on building towards financial independence, leave us a rating and review. The Gen Wealth financial team is available to you 24-7 at info at getreadyforthefuture.com or call our offices at 866-653-PLAN. That's 866-653-7526. You should personally 
consult a financial advisor before making any investment, and no strategy can assure success. Securities offered through LPL Financial. Member FINRA SIPC. Investment advice offered through Independent Advisor Alliance. Independent Advisor Alliance and GenWealth Financial Advisors are separate entities from LPL Financial. 